Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore-Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book Rakundra's First Cruise by Arthur Ransom. This is part eight of the reading, and we're on chapter 16. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon-only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 16. The Ship and the Man Sailing from Baltic Port, one of a crew of four in another man's ship, I came to the far end of the Degorot Peninsula, and there had an experience which I cannot refrain from putting in this book, so full it was the romance of those rarely visited waters. We had anchored half a mile from the shore, off the place that is called Amwinst, which means the terrible, for it is a place of many wrecks, a rocky point open to the widest sweep of the winds across the Baltic. We had not dared to go nearer, and I was glad we had not, for as I rowed ashore in the little boat, I passed many rocks awash and saw others a foot or two under the water. There were dark purple clouds rising over the sea to the northwest. Wind was coming, and we were impatient to be off again, to find shelter, or at least to put some miles of sea between us and that notorious coast. But there was still sunlight on the rocky shore, and on the dark pine woods that ran almost down to the water's edge, and on the little wooden pierhead, unmarked on the chart, which, seen through binoculars, had tempted us to run in and look for information and supplies. Beyond the pierhead was a little stretch of beach, where I meant to land, But, looking over my shoulder as I pulled in, bobbing over the waves in my little boat, I could see none of the things that a pierhead usually promises. There was no watchman's hut on the pier, no smoke above the trees, no cottages, no loafers, no fishermen, no sign of any kind of life. And then, coming nearer, I saw that the pier was in ruins. Much of its planking had gone, great beams were leaning perilously over from it, and here and there, Masses of it had actually fallen into the water. I wished to waste no time and was on the point of turning and pulling back to the ship when I saw something else more promising than the pier. Just within the forest that stretched down to the beach, almost hidden by the tall pines, was the great golden body of an unfinished ship. Where a ship was building there surely must be men, and I rode in, confidently past the ruined pier, slipped off my shoes, rolled up my trousers, and, jumping overboard, pulled the little boat through shallow water and up on a narrow strip of small pebbles. Then, walking up into the shadow of the trees, I came to the ship, the upper part of which, far above my head, was glowing in the splashes of sunshine that came through the tops of the pines which brushed the sides of the ship as they waved in the gathering wind. There was not a man to be seen, or a hut for men, nor was there sound or hammers or any of the usual accompaniments of shipbuilding. But for the ruined pier and that golden hull in the shadows among those tall trees, the coast might have been that of an undiscovered island. And then I began to notice one or two things about the ship herself which seemed a little odd. She was a very large ship to be building on that bit of coast, where there is no real harbour, and the most ambitious launches are those of the 20-foot fishing boats which a man builds during the winter, to earn his living in the summer months. She seemed even larger than she was, as ships do on land, shut in there among the trees that pressed about her, as if they had grown up round her. And her lines were not those of a new ship, there was something a little old-fashioned about them, 
as though she were an unfinished masterpiece of an older period. A few schooners of her type survive today among those libers that carry timber and potatoes round the Estonian coast, and they outsail those mon ships in which an obstreperous motor, tucked away in the stern, makes up for the want of the love and thought that went into the lines of the older vessels. And then I saw that I was wrong in thinking that she had been newly planked. The upper planking was new, certainly, ruddy gold where the sun caught it, but lower down her hull was weathered. Only the topmost planks had been freshly put on, and as the eye descended from them it passed imperceptibly from a new to an old piece of shipbuilding. The keel, laid on great stones, was joined to them by moss. There was lichen upon it, and on the foot of the stern post was a large, bright cluster of scarlet toadstools. Just then I found a narrow, lightly worn track running from the ship farther into the forest. I walked along it, and only a few score yards away, but quite invisible from the shore, I came out of the silence and the trees into a small clearing and a loud noise of grasshoppers. There was a tiny hayfield, not bigger than a small suburban garden, a cornfield, perhaps three times the size, and an old log cabin with a deep thatched roof, an outhouse or two, a dovecot, and pigeons fluttering about it. The pigeons fluttered and murmured, but no dog barked, and no one answered when I knocked at the low door of the hut. I knocked again, and then, doubtfully, tried the wooden latch, opened it, and walked in. A very little light came through the small windows, heavily overhung by the deep thatch. The hut was divided into two rooms. In the first were a couple of spinning wheels, one very old, black with age, the other quite new, a precise copy of it, the two contrasting like the upper planking and the keel of that still unfinished ship. There was also a narrow wooden bed, a great oak chest and a wooden stool, all made as if to last forever. A few very clean cooking things were on the stove and fishing lines and nets were hanging from wooden pegs on the walls. The second room held no furniture but a bench and a big hand loom for weaving. There was some grand strong canvas being made upon it and as I looked at it I guessed suddenly that here was being made the sails for the ship. Without knowing why I hurried out of the cabin into the sunshine and leaning on the gate into the cornfield as if he had been there all the time an old man stood watching me. He had steel-grey curly hair and very dark blue eyes. The skin of his face was clear walnut. He might have been any age from fifty to a hundred. His clothes were of some strong homespun cloth, probably made on the loom where he was making the sails. The shoes on his bare brown feet were of woven string with soles of thick rope. With his arrival, the whole place seemed to have sprung to life, he was accompanied by three sheep, and two pigs snuffled in the ground close by. A dog, impassive as his master, lay beside the gate, half opening his eyes as if he had been waked from sleep. Somehow I could make no apology for having gone into his cottage. I asked him where to land eastward along the coast and for the nearest anchorage sheltered from the northwest. He told me what I wanted gravely, and with a curious air of taking his words one by one out of a lumber room and dusting them before use. I tried to get eggs and butter from him, but he said that he had no eggs and never made more butter than he needed. I should get some from the forester at Pali or Ludja near the anchorage. I asked him about the pier. Once upon a time there had been people here and timber traffic? 
Yes, but that was a long time ago, and the people have all gone away. Was it then that you began building the ship? Yes, that was when I began building the ship. His dark blue eyes watching me, but indifferent as the sea itself, invited no more questions. I turned back by the path under the great ship, so many times larger than his cottage, and found myself oddly hurried as I pushed our little boat into the water and rowed away. I could just catch the sunlight splashes on the body of the ship among the trees. Would she ever be finished? And what then? What had he planned as he worked on her year after year? Would he die before his dream came true, or before he knew that the dreaming was the better part of it? But the sunlight faded, and the wind had freshened, and for a long time I thought no more about him, for we had enough to do with our own ship. Chapter 17 Baltic Port to Spitham. September the 7th. Barometer 30.25 inches of mercury, about 1,024 millibars. Wind at dawn, southwest, slight. We sailed at 7am without incident, except that in pushing our way out along the eastern quay, the sharp point of our long boat hook, a Davina lumberman's pole with a really sharp spike on the end used for handling floating logs, stuck fast in the wooden piles, and the pole remained quivering there, like the Trojan spear in the wooden sides of that barrack of a horse, until it was extracted by a good fellow who climbed down for it and brought it round to the narrow harbour mouth and gave it back to us as we rounded the pierhead. We then had a fair wind out of the bight into which we had so laboriously tacked the night before. It was a fair wind, but a very light one. It shifted to the south, and at 8.20 we were at the mouth of the bay, on a line between the point of East Rugo and Pecorot. We bore up to pass as near as might be West Rugo Point, where the English charts are right in marking a conspicuous tree. The tree is a very little one, but it is the only one on that desolate promontory. No, not quite the only one, for as we came nearer, we saw that its successor was already being prepared. A little tree, exactly like the first, is growing close to it, so that when the old one dies or is blown away, another shall be conspicuous in its stead. The tree is dead, long live the tree, and the charts shall need no correction. Would that similar precautions had been taken in other places. It was a glorious morning of brilliant sunshine, but the wind grew less and less, and what there was was shifting against us. At 9.45 we were off West Rugo Spar Boy, close by the wind and heading west-south-west and half a degree west. At 11 we were still between West Rugo and Grassgrund, but were now on the starboard tack and heading southwest and a half degree west, the wind having shifted northerly. The rock of Grassgrund, which had been visible on our way eastwards, was now not alone, and a considerable island had appeared above water. A fishing boat had tied up to this amphibious place, and a couple of lads were sunning themselves on ground far out at sea, which is almost always a foot or two under water. Far inshore, Behind Rugo Island, we sighted a cutter which had probably spent the night by the little village of Wichapol, now slowly working westwards like ourselves. We held her all day. At noon, the wind increased a little, coming from west-northwest. We set the mizzen staysail and tried to pretend to ourselves that we were moving quite fast. We were able to keep more or less on our course and, as the afternoon wore on, Odin's home, from being a row of spots on the horizon, became a visible, definite island, with a lighthouse at one end and a cutter's mast at the other, nearby a shed or two. 
The barometer, however, was falling. We were heading for the Nuki Channel, which is not lit, and we had no longer the smallest chance of getting there by daylight. Once round the point of Spitham, we should have a long way to go for shelter. Looking south towards the land, we saw that the cutter which had sailed a beam of us from the Rugo Islands was far inshore, clearly making for the hither side of Spitham, where a schooner was already at anchor. We made up our minds to trust to local knowledge, and do the same. We altered our course, and, having the wind free, stood straight in for the two ships, encouraged by seeing the cutter round up close by the schooner and lower her sails just as we put the helm up. We sailed in close by the rocky side of Spitham and saw the six windmills, five according to the charts, but really six, on the little hill. Boats, loaded, gunnel-deep in firewood, were coming offshore to the schooner, just as I had seen last year off the northern coast of Dago, where also there is no harbour. The schooners anchor offshore. The wood is carried into the water on little carts, then packed into boats, leaving just room for a couple of boys who, on reaching the ship, throw the wood up log by log to the captain, his wife, his men and his children, who stow it in the hold. If the wind blows on shore, loading is interrupted and the schooners put to sea, returning when a change of wind brings smooth water. As we slipped along towards them, the captain of the cutter gave us the use of his local knowledge in the nick of time by waving us eastward of a shallow patch which, in the failing light, we had not observed immediately on our bows. We were using the lead but had no warning of it until the captain's hail and wave instantly obeyed and saved us by a few yards. When we had cleared the shoal, he waved again, and five minutes afterwards we were at anchor beside the others. We were three, the firewood-loading schooner, big and quite new, the elderly cutter, about twice our own size, and the little Rakundra, shielded from the west by Spit and Point, Spint Head on English charts, more or less shielded from the east by the distant islands of Rugo, but open to the north and northwest, with nothing but the little island of Odensholm between us and the coast of Sweden, near 200 miles away. Not a very good anchorage, but as I reasoned, the schooner being worse than ourselves in working to windward would clear out in plenty of time to give us warning, and the skipper of the cutter would hardly be putting the covers on his sails and be getting ready to go ashore if he had expected anything very bad during the night. We slung the dinghy overboard with a tackle, and the cook and I went ashore to see what we could find of Spitten before it grew too dark. An elderly man in grey homespuns saw us coming and walked from his cottage just above high water mark down to the shingle. He helped us to pull up the dinghy and fasten the painter to the thwart of a boat of his own that was lying well out of reach of the waves. Then, having in his manner made us his guests, he spoke to us in German, in Swedish, in Estonian and in Russian, apologising for not knowing more than a few words of English, and those being only words of the sea and unlikely for the moment to be of much use. He was very pleased to know so many languages, delighted that we could answer him a word or two in each of them, inquired politely in Swedish which language we preferred to talk, and finding that Russian came easiest to us, went on with our talk in that. He was a Swede, and his name was Anders Ringberg, he took the cook into his charge and sold her milk, potatoes, and very little salt fish, which he swore had been caught the previous day and were hardly salt at all. For this gross error, however, he atoned by making her a present of some cranberries and giving me copies of two Swedish newspapers, issued specially for the Swedes of the Estonian islands, 
These relics of the old Swedish colonization, the Raval one, a typical local newspaper with its little scrap of gossip about Odensholm, about Runo, about worms, about each one of the Swedish settlements, so that no one of its purchasers should fail to find in it something of peculiar interest to himself. It even recorded with proper solemnity the rare visits of yachts to the outlying islets. Anders Ringberg was very disappointed that we could not play the harmonium, for he had one in his house, and had made sure at once that we, as educated people from far countries, would be able to do wonderful things with it. Hemp was growing in his garden, and he told us that the men of Spittum not only built their own boats, they had built the big schooner that was lying beside Rakundra, but spun and wove the hemp, making nets, ropes, fishing lines, and very stout clothes for their sea-going. I went for a walk up the little hill to see the windmills, of the same form as those on Rugo Island. From the hill, I could see down through a gap in the pine woods to the shore on the other side of the promontory, where, in the trees, another schooner was building. Here, so I learnt, there is a better anchorage, but the way into it is extremely dangerous for those who do not know the rocks. There is, of course, no detailed chart of the place. Coming down the hill again, I walked through the village of Spittum, a village of stout log huts with, as on Rugo, fine pigs walking about the narrow lanes and everywhere fishing nets drying. Some of the houses were rudely painted with ochre, but most were the natural colour of the weather-beaten wood, the ends of the logs dovetailed across each other at the corners. One small hut caught my eye from a long way off, with the word York upon it in big white letters. I came near to it and found that I was looking at the carved nameboard of a ship built into the house. There was the green painted scrollwork, and in the middle of it, carved deeply from the wood, those big white letters on which, no doubt, a great many waves had beat before the ship that carried them went ashore and was broken up, to the profit of the natives, on the rocks beyond the point. An English ship, or maybe an American, and she must have been wrecked here a long time ago, as many others have been wrecked for, not Anders Ringberg nor anybody else could tell me anything about her. Down on the beach, the men had stopped work for the night. The last of the boats, which had been carrying firewood to the schooner, came in and grounded. A wire rope was shackled to a ring on the waterline under her bows, and I lent a hand at winding her up over fur rollers by means of a primitive capstan deeply bedded in the beach. Two small men of Spittum, aged about eight, I suppose, were early beginning their inevitable career, sailing against each other two beautiful models of their father's broad-bowed schooners. They were wading in the water, and one of them brought his model ashore to show me. Every detail of the rigging was there, and the hull was built like the ships themselves, decked with a hatch amidships, a small square, half-sunk deck house aft, the wheel behind that, the sails broad and not high, with large topsails, two jibs and a staysail. The skipper of the cutter had made several trips to the shore and back with things he had brought in his ship. He was now unloading his little boat for the last time. He had brought ashore sacks of coal for the winter, much other gear and a heavy iron-bound ancient trunk. He told me of the harbourage there is in Odensholm and said he always left his cutter there for the winter when ice makes sailing impossible. There, no matter what may be, the ice can never touch her. He himself spends the winter ashore here in Spittum. He asked if we were not the boat that had come to Raval during the gale of a fortnight before, said he had been sheltering in Raval at that time, and paid Rakundra almost as many compliments as that stout little ship deserved. With these compliments, warming my heart as compliments to Rakundra always do warm it, 
I made my way back along the shore to the dinghy where the cook had already arrived with her parcels. We rowed back through smooth water, for the wind had fallen altogether, so that I was glad we were not drifting about on the other side of the point. And after we had had supper and decided that Anders Ringberg ought not to have mistaken his fish for fish caught yesterday, we smoked in the cockpit and looked towards the village. It was nine o'clock. There was not a light to be seen. Everyone in the place had gone to bed. The blinking light on Rugo showed far away and the light on Odin's home, and we could just see another behind the trees on the point warning the Yorks of these days not to come to provide name boards for the Spitham houses. Schooner and Cutter were in perfect darkness, so Rakundra ran her riding light up the forestay to serve alike for herself and her big sisters, and we turned in and slept. After midnight, I went on deck and found the wind easterly, the moon high, clouds overhead moving from the south, and the sea nearly calm. Well, that's the end of today's reading, and I hope you enjoyed it. It brings me so much pleasure to be able to read these books and to bring them back out into the light from dusty library shelves and uh, share with you the fantastic uh, stories which we're, we're seeing unfold here. This book, uh, Rakundra's First Cruise, is 100 years old this year, and yet I think all of us are already able to see that with a great writer like Arthur Ransom, um, you've got some really special way of connecting through to people who love doing the same things we love to do out on a boat, enjoying themselves. So if you like this kind of content, if you want to hear more of it, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Five dollars a month helps to support this podcast, which goes out 20 times a month. But starting now in January of 2023, there's a whole extra series of books being read over on Patreon. Um, those are available for patrons of every level. So a whole extra series of books there in the same line and things I'm sure you'll find very enjoyable. So that's patreon.com forward slash the Marinette, support the podcast and get your hands on those extra sailing books. Great. Well, thank you very much for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Cheers. Cheers.